dearest place on earth. I really believe that. that this moment, this place, this gathering is the dearest place on earth. There is nowhere I would rather be right now than proclaiming God's Word to you, the church that I love. I thank God for you. I see you. I love you. You are precious in His sight and in mine. Well, in our study of the greatest letter ever written, we are in the middle of what I believe is the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. So I hope your fingers just immediately start turning to Romans 8 in your Bible. I hope these pages are already worn out in your Bible. I think we need more coffee stains, more pet hair, and more crinkles in these pages of our Bibles. The Bible is not made just to be in a museum, on a shelf somewhere. It is made to be used heavily in our day-to-day lives. And the passage that God has ordained for us to study this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, let me read God's word over us. Here's what Paul says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the eternal truth of our God. May He burn it into our hearts. Let me begin by asking you a really tough question. What is the greatest blessing that we have received as Christians? What is the greatest blessing that we have received as Christians. Of all the good that comes to us from the Gospel, what is the greatest good? Now, you can probably begin thinking really quickly of a dozen answers to give to that question. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a right standing with God, no fear of condemnation, and we could just keep going on and on with this list. And all of those things are tremendous blessings. But I would submit to you that there is a blessing greater than all others, without which all of those other blessings would be not as significant. I'm, of course, referring to the blessing of being adopted as God's own children. Not just being created in God's image, that's amazing, but being welcomed as His own dear child. J.I. Packer argued that adoption is the highest privilege of the Gospel. 
even higher than justification. J.I. Packer wrote, The revelation to the believer that God is his Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. The revelation that God is our Father is the climax of all of Scripture. In fact, in his excellent book called Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote this. This quote will be on the screen. I love this. He said, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. (laughs) Packer says, being a child of God is the greatest blessing imaginable. And this is to be the controlling thought of how we relate to God. Is this the controlling thought in how you relate to God that you are adopted as His own dear child? In other words, if you see yourself as a despised slave of God, you don't understand what Jesus accomplished at the cross. If you see God as a harsh employer for whom you have to work in order to get wages, you don't understand the gospel well enough. If we were to ask the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? One of the most fundamental answers that we could give to that question is that a Christian is one who has God as his or her father through faith in Jesus. A Christian is one who has been adopted into the family of God and thus knows God, relates to God as Father. This is why being adopted by God is the greatest blessing that comes to us from the Gospel. You see, justification, a right standing with God, is a great blessing. Forgiveness of sins is a great blessing. But adoption is greater than all because in adoption, the judge not only declares us not guilty, but the judge also gets up off the bench, comes down to where we are, takes our chains off of us, and says to us, come home with me as my own child. You see, adoption assures us of the Father's welcoming us as His own sons and daughters. And it is to this glorious truth that Paul turns here in this great chapter on the assurance of our salvation. After telling us that we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, he tells us that the Spirit's work is to show us that we are sons of God. Why does the Spirit dwell in us? Why has God deposited His very Spirit in every believer? Paul says it is so that He could show us that we are His sons. In fact, Paul calls the Holy Spirit in verse 15, the Spirit of adoption. What a title for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. I'd point to verse 14 as the key verse of this passage. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now at the end of this sermon, 
I'm going to explain why I believe Paul says sons and not sons and daughters. Some of your translations have taken liberty to say sons and daughters here, and people get real offended by this kind of language of just using sons. But I think there's a very specific reason that Paul is using language of sons here. But notice he says, all who are led by the Spirit of God, that is, all who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. So we are sons of God, and we are led by the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God is evidence that we are adopted as God's own children. And what Paul does here is he specifically mentions two responsibilities that we have as sons, and then he gives us three privileges that we have as sons. So he gives us two responsibilities and three privileges. So everyone who has ever seen Spider-Man knows that with great power or privilege comes great responsibility. So two responsibilities and three privileges of being sons of God. Let's talk about these. Here's the first of the responsibilities. Number one, the Spirit enables us to put our sin to death. The Spirit enables us to put our sin to death. Romans chapter 6 through 8 have said a lot how, about how Christians are to deal with sin and our sin nature. But here in verses 12 and 13, Paul summarizes how we as Christians are to view and relate to our sin. What are we to do with it? We are to kill it, Paul says. We're to starve our flesh. We're to cut off its oxygen. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says we're debtors. But he never says to who or what we are indebted to. The assumption is that we are debtors to the Spirit here, but Paul doesn't say that. He just says we're not debtors any longer to our flesh. In other words, if we're believers, we don't owe our sinful flesh anything anymore. Jesus satisfied the debt that our flesh caused us to owe by His death on the cross. And so now as believers, when our flesh entices us, when we are tempted by our own sinful nature, we should respond by saying, I'm not your debtor. I am not in debt to you any longer. I owe you nothing. You can actually say that out loud in temptation. I owe you nothing. I don't have to pay you a dime. You have already been satisfied. You are not a debtor to your sinful nature because Jesus has set you free from it. You are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. You are a child of God and thus not a debtor to your flesh. So in verse 13, Paul says that our obligation is to put to death the deeds of our earthly flesh. Because we're no longer debtors, our responsibility now, our obligation now, is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Puritans used to call this the mortification of the flesh. 
We are not to live according to the flesh, but we are to put our sin to death. This is our obligation as Spirit-led sons of God. It is inconsistent to be a child of God and enjoy the blessings of being a child of God and at the same time allow sin to reign and take root in our lives. Friends, the Christian life is a life of war. When we trust in Jesus, we take up the fight of our lives. We wage war against sin every day of our lives. I've shared this quote before, but it is one every Christian should know. The Puritan John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Owen actually wrote an entire book on Romans 8.13 called The Mortification of Sin. An entire book on this activity of killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no peacetime. There is no retirement in the Christian life. Every moment of every day of our lives is a battle against our sinful flesh. Now, does that sound exhausting to you? It does to me. I like leisure. I like rest. However, there is no rest from sin in this life. Our sin is constantly seeking to kill us. Sin does not take vacations. It does not rest. It is relentless in tempting and seeking to draw us away from the things of God. But notice the point of Romans 8.13. It is that we have help in this battle. We have help. We have been given help in this mortification of sin. Paul says we are to put to death the deeds of the body. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. This is one of the reasons we have the Spirit indwelling in us so that we have help in this fight against our sinful nature. Now listen, verse 13 does not say the Spirit kills sin for us. You see that? It doesn't say just sit back and the Spirit will do all the work for you. It says we are to do this. Put to death the deeds of the body. But verse 13 also doesn't say we do this in our own strength or power. We do this by the Spirit's power. We fight, we kill, we put to death while the Spirit empowers us and preserves us in this fight. We are not left to ourselves as we battle our sinful nature. So are you doing this? Is this a responsibility that you have taken up to put your sin to death? Are you waging war? Or have you given in and given up? Listen, the fight against sin is evidence that we are filled with the Spirit of God. That we are children of God. The fight itself is evidence that we are filled with the Spirit. If you're not fighting then you should question whether you're even a believer at all. If you never fight, if you only give in, it is probably because you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Christians put to death the deeds of their body. Are you doing that? Or have you been feeding and nurturing and giving in to your sin? Remember the Lord Jesus said that if your hand causes you to sin, that you are to cut it off. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean that literally. We know that sin originates in our hearts, not in our hands or in our eyes. 
You could literally cut off every part of your body and you would still be tempted. The point is that we should deal radically with sin, seeking to cut its head off, seeking to starve it. We are not to coddle our sin, to let it stick around. We are to suffocate it by the Spirit's power. The Spirit helps us in this. Praise God, the Spirit helps us and the Spirit uses all these tools at His disposal to help us. Like, for example, He uses God's Word to help us battle our sin. The Scripture is one of the greatest weapons. It is, in fact, the sword of the Spirit. This is how we kill sin, by God's Word. Also, He's given us the church family, the church body to help us do this. We don't fight alone, friends. We don't fight our sin by ourselves. You shouldn't fight alone. God has given you help in your brothers and sisters. Now, putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit does not mean that we actually will ever kill sin in this life. This is a lifelong struggle with our sinful flesh. The victory has already been won, yes, but we live in the already not yet era where sin will seek to destroy us and kill us every day. And so we are never done fighting in this life, which is one of the reasons we should be crying out constantly, come Lord Jesus. We long for You to come and make all things right. This is also one of the reasons why it is so precious when a Christian finishes their race well. There's hardly anything more precious in this life than when a Christian finishes with faith to the end. When believers die with faith in Jesus, it signals the end of their war with sin. So how can we all finish well? How can we all ensure we get there? We fight sin by the power of the Spirit until we take our last breath knowing that we are sons of God. What an obligation. What a responsibility we've been given as sons. We've been indwelt by the Spirit so that we can put the deeds of our flesh to death every day, every moment of every day. Well, here's the second obligation or responsibility that we've been given. The Spirit enables us to cry out to God as our Father. The Spirit enables us to kill sin Killing sin is a responsibility. The Spirit enables us to cry out to God as Father. So crying out to God is a responsibility we have as children of God. Notice verse, four, notice verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this is the positive aspect of the Spirit's leading in our life. The Spirit enables us to relate to God as our Father. Left to ourselves, we would only see God as worthy of our fear or worthy of our obedience. But the Spirit enables us to live as adopted children crying out to Him as our Father. So this is really important to see in this text. The negative work of the Spirit is to help us kill sin. But the positive work of the Spirit, the positive way He helps us kill sin, is to give us a superior calling as children of our Father. See, we put sin to death because we have a loving Father who has given us His Spirit. We fight as beloved sons, not as slaves or as mere hired soldiers. 
We don't fight out of fear primarily. We fight as adopted sons. We don't just kill sin and that's it. The goal of life is not just to kill sin and be neutral. No, we want to kill sin. Why? Because we want to please our Father. Because we have a positive goal we are running after. And so the Spirit helps us in this to cry out to God as our Father, to see Him as worthy of our trust and our treasuring. Notice what this implies. This implies we have access and intimacy with our Father. The term Abba is a term of intimacy. This is the cry of a young child to his daddy. This is a cry of trust. This is a cry of relationship, of intimacy. This is the very cry that Jesus used in Mark 14 when He cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane to His Father. Abba, hear me. Daddy, I need you now. I've shared this quote before, but Tim Keller once said, the only person who would dare wake a king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access to God. We can cry, Abba, to Him. Listen, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're filled with God's Spirit, God does not treat us like an egotistic, power-hungry slave owner. God does not stand over us with a whip waiting for us to mess up so that He could lash us on the back again. God does not treat us like Cinderella was treated by her wicked stepmother. We are not God's stepchildren. We are adopted as true sons. In Jesus, we have all the rights and privileges and blessings of being sons of God. We are no longer slaves. We no longer have the spirit of fear, but we are sons with the spirit of adoption. And as sons, we now have access to our Father. Friends, we don't have to make an appointment to meet with our Father. We don't have to stand in line or pay a fee to meet Him. In Jesus, we have full access to the Father as His children, and He invites us to cry to Him, Abba, Father. Have you seen the famous picture of young John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting under the Resolute desk? Put it up on the screen for you. I know I've shared this picture before for those of you who've been here for some time, but unless someone can help me with a better illustration of the kind of access we have, I'm going to keep using this picture. This picture is so powerful because if you or I would have knocked on the White House door that day, and requested to meet with the president, we would have been flat out rejected. Common people don't have access to the president, but JFK's son didn't have to set, an up, set up an appointment. He didn't have to be frisked by the Secret Service. He just waltzed into his daddy's office and played under his desk. Imagine the kind of decisions that were made at that desk that day. Imagine the phone calls that were made on that very phone that day nations literally being moved at that desk. And if young JFK Jr. would have just said, Daddy, everything would have stopped and the attention would have been on the child. That's the privilege we have as sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into His family. He has removed the separation and He welcomes us into His presence. We were once His enemies. We have been made His beloved Children, if you don't relate to God as your Father, you are not led by the Spirit of God. 
That's what verse 14 says. If you only relate to God in the spirit of fear, you are not led by the Spirit of God. But crying out to God as your Father is a mark of a genuine Christian. Christians relate to God as their loving Father. This is the greatest privilege of the Gospel. And as adopted, Spirit-led believers, think of the tremendous blessings and privileges that are ours. So in addition to the responsibilities that are laid on us here, there are some massive uh, blessings and privileges that Paul gives us. So in addition to intimacy and access, we've already talked about, notice three specific blessings that Paul mentions in this passage. The first is assurance of salvation. The first blessing that Paul mentions is assurance of salvation. Being a child implies living with security in our relationship with the Father. Notice how Paul makes this explicit in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now I'm going to be honest. I wrestle with verse 16. I'm a huge believer in eternal security. It was my request that Mike and the team lead us in He Will Hold Us Fast just before this message. Like, I love the doctrine of eternal security. This is more valuable to me than almost anything in all of life. And I believe the Bible teaches that we can have objective assurance. That is, we can know we are Christians if we are trusting in Jesus alone. And so my counsel to people who come to me who are struggling with assurance is to look at Jesus. Look away from your feelings, look away from your doubts, look away from all of that and look to Jesus. He is the one who says, all my confidence is outside of me, it is in Jesus. But verse 16 makes assurance subjective and inward. You see that? The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. This is an inner assurance that the Spirit gives us. This is a, a confirming work that the Spirit does, testifying to our spirit that we are sons of God. And I have found this to be gloriously true and precious. I can testify to this. I know this testimony. I can't describe it. I can't analyze it for you. I just know that God's Spirit is in me confirming my salvation all the time reminding me that I am a child of God. Yes, I know this is subjective. Someone could be fooled into thinking that they have this assurance and not really be a child of God. I get all of that. But I do believe this inner assurance is based on the objective, Spirit-inspired Word of God. The Spirit uses the truth of God to testify to us that we are God's children. And what that means is you can't walk around with this assurance and live every other way other than pleasing to God. You, can't, you should have no assurance if that's you. you. It has to be confirmed by something real and objective and true. But based on the truth of God's Word, the Spirit testifies and gives us this inner assurance that I am a child. I am a son of God. This is the kind of assurance that God gives that causes us to sing with gusto. Jesus loves me. This I know. 
for the Bible tells me so. What, what a blessing assurance of salvation is. We have this as sons of God. We have this. Do you have this assurance and security as an adopted child of God? I pray you do. The second blessing that Paul mentions here is the blessing of inheritance. Not only do we have assurance of our salvation, but we have an inheritance. So verse 17 says that if we are children, then we are certainly heirs. You see, the children get the inheritance. Now, this is where it's important to note that Paul used the language of sons and not sons and daughters. Some people get offended by the use of male language here. However, we all know that the firstborn son was the one who got the inheritance. This had to do with keeping the family name and so that particular families would survive for generations. And so Paul is saying all of us, male and female, are treated in Jesus like that firstborn son. That's what Paul is saying, that all of us, male and female together, get the inheritance as sons. This is an incredible future Paul is pointing us toward. When God adopts us as His sons, He gives us the inheritance that Jesus deserves. The inheritance that Jesus won. Jesus has secured our seat at the Father's table. Jesus has secured our fellowship with the Father. Jesus has written us into the Father's inheritance. Just a handful of years ago, my family and I stood before a judge to finalize the adoption of our youngest son, Habtamu. As part of this process, the judge asked us a series of questions, making sure that we understood that this adoption was final and it was legally binding. And one of the questions that the judge asked us was that if we understood that Habtamu was now our legal heir with the exact same rights and privileges as our biological children. And in the same way, friends, when we are adopted by God as His sons, we receive the inheritance that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, deserves. Jesus took our sin and punishment in order to give us the inheritance that He deserves. Unfortunately, sometimes when inheritance is divided out today, one or more children may feel like they got the short end of the stick, so to speak. That their siblings got a double portion, that they got slighted. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you are in Jesus, you have been given every spiritual blessing purchased by Him. You lack nothing of all that Jesus died to give you. Your inheritance is vast and it is secured for you in the heavenly places. Oh, friends, we are abundantly rich in Christ. He has lavished this inheritance to our account so that we can enjoy it both now and for all eternity. Christian, you may not have much money in this life. You may not have many friends, although you've got a room full of friends right here. You've got a family right here, but you may not feel at times like you have very much. But in Jesus, you have been given every spiritual blessing. And God has not just given those to us begrudgingly, as if it was against His better judgment. No, God has lavished 
His riches on us because of the work of Jesus. You have been given a new inheritance in the gospel. If you are children, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But there's one more blessing I want you to see in the text. Number three, we have received suffering with Jesus. As children, we get suffering with Jesus. Notice the end of verse 17. Paul says that one of the qualifications is that we suffer with Jesus so that we will be glorified. See, children not only have assurance and inheritance, but children get to identify with the family. Children get to be part of this vast family, and being part of this family means we will suffer. Now, Paul is going to continue this thought into verses 18 to 25, but let me just ask here, do you see identifying with Jesus in suffering as a privilege and blessing? Be honest, most of the time, no, we don't see it as a blessing and a privilege. But Paul shares why it's a privilege in verse 18. And he does this all through his letters. For example, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul counts all as rubbish. Why? So that he may share in the sufferings of Christ. To suffer with Jesus is to be a child of the Father. And the Spirit helps us by reminding us that the suffering of this life, according to verse 18, is not even worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. Are you an adopted son of the Father? If so, praise and thank God now. If not, here's the good news. You can be adopted as a son today. Like You might have come in this room as an orphan, but you can leave as a Spirit-led son. Acknowledge right now your sin before God. Acknowledge that you have rebelled against Him and trust in Jesus alone. And if you do that, if you turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus alone, I pray that right now the Spirit would do the work of testifying to you that you are a child of God. What an amazing, unfathomable truth that if we have the Spirit of God, we are sons of God. And what an incredible passage to study just before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. You see, the truth of the Lord's Supper is this. God has not invited us to be merely busboys at His table this morning. God hasn't invited us merely to clean up after the real children eat. No, in Christ, He's invited us as His own beloved children to this table. We don't have to pay for this meal. Children don't pay for meals. This meal is offered free of charge by the Father. He sent His Son to pay the price for our sins so that we can know Him as our Father. Think about what a meal represents. Now, we don't have a table big enough this morning for us all to get around it and pass the elements like we're passing items at a meal, but that's the symbolism of this table. God is inviting us to pull up our chair, to put our knees up under His table in fellowship with Him. If you're trusting in Jesus, there's a placeholder at this table with your name on it. God is inviting you to shake out your napkin and put it in your lap and enjoy this supper with Him. In other words, one of the realities that's symbolized by what we're about to do is, is the reality of adoption. 
God has adopted us as His own dear children, and now He gives us all the rights and privileges of His sons and daughters. And He wants us to enjoy Him. He wants us to fellowship with Him in this. And so if you're, if you're trusting in Jesus today, if you've connected yourself to His church, if you've followed Him in baptism, we invite you to partake of these elements as you remember the great sacrifice of Jesus. To partake with amazement that you have God as your Father, that He Himself is our inheritance. But if you're not trusting in Jesus today, you should not partake of this supper. Paul warned that we should not partake of these elements in an unworthy manner. And so if you're not a Christian, do not partake of these elements. Simply pass the plate to the next person and utilize this time to pray and ask God to change your heart and ask Him to amaze you by the greatness of this gospel. So as the music team comes, as the deacons go ahead and come, we're going to serve these elements. Let's take this time for the purpose of self-examination. Are you amazed that you are God's own child? Is all your confidence in Jesus alone for your salvation? Take this time as we sing about how deep the Father's love is for us to confess your sins, to believe the promises of God's Word. Let's trust Him now.